0: Hey, how's it going everybody, this is Chris Welcome to episode 41 of The Essential X-Lapsed And, uh, this is one that, just by looking at the cover And, and, you know, we're not supposed to judge books by their cover, right? You know, I look at the cover and I see that we're fighting the Cobalt Man here And, uh, well, that didn't exactly fill me with, uh, (laughs) much joy or excitement But, not to put the cart before the horse here This is a pretty fun issue a wildly, unexpectedly fun issue. So uh, let's just hop right into it here. This is X-Men number 31, April 1967 cover date. The story's called "We Must Destroy Dot 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 The Cobalt Man," written by Roy Thomas, pencils Werner Roth, inks John Tartaglioni. I usually take about four or five takes to get through that name, but I got it in one. I think. Uh, letters Sam Rosen, colors by uh, Cobalt Crayon, I guess. Uh, edit Stan Lee. Cover price 12 cents. Now we open with uh, Angel, and uh, say it with me, he is deftly defying some obstacles while he soars through the air. And he's very nearly singed or scorched by a flamethrower, but he makes it through okay. From here, Beast hops off a diving board, propelling him above some lasers and smoke. And up above, uh, Warren catches him by the wrists. Down below, the smoke continues to fill the area, and an Iceman concocts an ice maypole for Beast to slide down. This, of course, is a danger room training scenario, and a wildly specific one at that. I really don't see this, you know, scenario coming into practical use. Which means they'll probably bust it out at some point in the next couple of issues and call it Maneuver A or something. Anyway, from here, Professor X congratulates the fellows on a job well done, and then... Well, stop me if you heard this one before. He sends them on vacation. Yes, again, this is like the fifth time Ah, oh, boy Well, you know what, at least that one letter hack from last issue is going to be happy, right? He did say we need more vacations Anyway, Bobby and Hank are pleased as punch Realizing that they've just been handed yet another opportunity to disappoint Zelda and Vera Warren's going to hop in his stang and uh, see where the road takes him Scott, however, decides he's going to stick around and help Chuck with his experiments And Xavier's like, "Nah, screw that, you're leaving too and so he hands Scott a pile of books that he promised to deliver to Gene back at Metro College. These are probably the Cool Cool Can books from uh, issue what, 25 or so. Uh, you see here, uh, Xavier is kind of living vicariously through Scott at this point, right? And uh, also, he doesn't want him snooping in on whatever weird experiments he's going to be working on in the dungeon, probably while sitting in front of a heavy wooden door. Hmm. Anyway. Now, Scott's cool with making the delivery, because not only is he a suck-up, but he'd really like to make time with Ms. Gray. As Scott leaves the house, Warren pulls up beside him in the Stang, and makes it pretty clear that uh, this uh, spontaneous road trip he was about to engage in was uh, always destined to end at uh, Jean's dorm, so the fellas may as well go together. Warren also says that today's the day where they're going to make Jean choose which one of these goofballs she's going to want to share a soda with in the future. Meanwhile, Bobby and Hank get ready for their double date. And Hank is particularly somber here, um, like questioning whether or not he's more Beast or more Hank. And that seems kind of out of nowhere, but okay. A next stop, Metro College, where Gene is being chatted up by creepy Ted Roberts. And you know how we've learned over the past few issues that Ted's always been in the shadow of his far superior older brother? Yeah, you remember that? Anybody want to meet that older brother? Yeah, me neither, but it's kind of important for the story that we do. So we got Ralph Roberts. He pulls up in his party wagon. Uh, I mean, it really looks like the Ninja Turtle van, only without the shell on it. It's his uh, Roberts Research van, and perhaps we should note that it's uh, largely windowless. Which, that's not looking good for Gene, is it? No, I'm I'm kidding, of course. Uh, Ralph seems to be a pretty affable sort. Uh, He and Ted start playfully razzing one another right off the bat, And they also talk to each other like absolute dorks. Like, uh, Ted calls Ralph alumnus. Lead on, alumnus. It's like, dude, shut up. Anyway, they decide to head into Metro's all-new stadium setup. And here we learn that Ralphie once, I don't know, scored four touchdowns in a single game on this field. Ted calls Ralph out for being old and living in the past. To which Ralph challenges him to some sort of athletic competition. It's quickly decided that they're going to try and out pole vault one another and, uh, well, for better or for worse, that's not a euphemism. So, before we know it, they're about to do it a thing. Now, it's age before beauty, so Ralphie goes first. And it looks like everything is going good, but then he falls and cracks his head open. Well, he uh, actually clunks his head really hard. There's no blood or nothing. Uh, Ted and Jean suggest that they probably ought to get him to a doctor PDQ, but uh, the older brother assures them both that he is just fine. From here, we shift over to the Never Say Diner, which is a eatery right off campus where our trio goes for a bite. Now, as uh, Ralphie regales them about Robert's research and how he used to work for Tony Stark, Scott and Warren enter the scene. Warren claims to have uh, seen Jean's flaming locks from outside the window, which I guess if we stop to think about it might be a little bit creepy. Anyway, now Scott is more than annoyed by the fact that he thinks he's got to compete against not just Worry here, but these other two dorks for Gene's attention and affection. Now, after lunch, they all decide to head back to Robert's research uh, to go take a look at some of the stuff Ralphie's been tinkering with. Warren declines, however, thinking to himself that he's just going to leave and uh, chase some tail. Like, really, that's what his goal is <laughs> for the rest of the day. Next up, we head over to the Coffee-A-Go-Go, where Bernard the Poet is rapping about yo-yos. Vera refers to him as their answer to Bob Dylan, which, to be honest, I'm not sure if that's a compliment or a diss. I'm not a Bob Dylan fan, personally. I think I'd rather listen to, like, a a frog get stepped on. Uh, Bernie wanders over to our hero's table to make time with sweet, sweet, sweet Zelda. Not Vera, because she's the worst. Uh, He asks if he can join them at the table, and Zelda is all about it. Bobby takes this opportunity to freeze Bernard's espresso. From here, we head over to the Monkey's Paw, which is formerly known as Pizza Paradise. I'm guessing businesses used to change names a lot back in the long ago, because this is treated as such. Like, oh no, that was last week, and this week it's this, and next week it'll be that. Anyway, Warren is here to prowl and hopefully get laid. Inside, we see some mods of the day dancing to the Monkey's I'm a Believer. Warren is immediately greeted by a surprise voice from his past. It's the beautiful Candy Southern whose last name is spelled a little differently here than we'll be used to. It's missing the U. Anyway, they were tight back in the long ago and decide to get reacquainted. Back to the Roberts brothers. We're at uh, Roberts Research Incorporated, and our narrator informs us that after eight long pages, it's finally supervillain time. So Ralphie's chosen medium is a cobalt. I mean, shocker, right? Now, he first shows Gene and Scott a drilling vehicle That looks like something that, like, the Foot Clan would tunnel through the Earth In on the Ninja Turtles cartoon So we get two Ninja Turtle references in the same episode, how about that? Uh, This drill dozer thing will come back around in a few issues' time So that's kind of neat From here, Ralphie pulls Ted aside to take him into another room To maybe take a peek at something he's been working on in secret And it's the Cobalt Man armor Duh Ralphie suits up, and we learn a little bit more about his goals with this thing. You see, we know he used to work for Stark, but we didn't know that he quit when Tony wouldn't divulge the secrets of the Iron Man armor. Ralphie's plan here is to fine-tune the Cobalt Man suit and then sell it to the government. Once helmeted up, Ralphie blasts a hole in the ceiling to prove how powerful his uh, cobalty recoil beam is. And uh, he also warns that, should he wear the thing for any longer than two hours, he'll become a walking cobalt bomb. So yeah, I mean, that sucks. Now, Ralphie then flies around a bit to demonstrate the aerial prowess of his ugly armor, and when he lands, he begins to see stars. Which, I suppose we might assume, is the lingering effect of having cracked his head open during the pole vault scene like 50 issues ago. Ted attempts to help Ralph out of the Cobalt Man costume, and gets backhanded. Uh Uh-oh, looks like Ralphie's done lost his mind. Now, after KOing his brother, he takes to destroying the Cobalt Man mold, because... I guess there can only be one Scott and Jean hear the clanging and banging And decide to see what's up And also get into costume I-, I gotta wonder where Jean keeps that cat's eye mask When she ain't wearing it Anyway, they present themselves to the Cobalt Man And so it's time for a fight And it's a pretty quick one It's a quick little fight here Which ends with old CM blasting a giant metal cab Which falls from the ceiling And appears to crush our heroes Cobalt Man takes off, leaving them for dead But they're not You know, they're not dead, but they are trapped. And so Scott uses his Mento watch to get a hold of the professor. And this is really, really dumb. Uh, Scott claims that he can't just mentally reach out to the prof, unless Charles opens his mind to him. Which, I mean, Professor X is like their professor and their mentor and their leader. Shouldn't his mind always be open to his students, his charges? I don't know. Anyway, Scott uses the watch, and Xavier answers the call, but decides that this is not a life-or-death thing, so he continues his dungeon experiment. And, I mean, he's got some test tubes and rats, so we know it's legit. And also, he's sitting in front of that heavy wooden door. Hmm. Now, while Xavier pretends he's the watcher and refuses to intervene, he does send out a psychic SOS to the rest of the X-Men, so, gee, thanks. So, how about we gather the team? First stop, coffee a go-go, where Bobby and Hank make up an excuse to leave, uh, which has become tradition, and also tradition, Vera and Zelda are annoyed. They head outside and attempt to hail a cab, to which I gotta ask, why doesn't Xavier just lend them one of his fleet of Rolls Royces? Oh well. Next up, the monkey's paw, where Warren tells Candy he's got a jet. Thankfully for him, she's like really thirsty for him, so she's not too upset. Worry hops into the stang and heads. We head back to R.R. Incorporated, where Scott and Jean finagle their way out of the wreckage. You see, Scott directs Jean to use her TK on a nearby chain-and-hook little gimmick there, rather than try to lift the entire cab off of them. And, I mean, we did see Jean lift an entire tower last issue, but, you know, it comes and it goes. Now, Jean is pretty conflicted here, which will surely annoy some of our letter-hack pals. First, she questions whether or not she belongs with the X-Men anymore. You know, she's off her game... Maybe this isn't the life for her. Second, she begins to wonder what her feelings for creepy Ted Roberts really are. Could it be care? Could it be love? What what could it be? Oy. Now, uh, by the time they free themselves, Ted has managed to wake up and bandage his head. He runs over to the party wagon to try and chase down his big brother, and Cyclops and Jean stow away in the back. We rejoin Hank and Bobby on the side of a highway where a cabbie kicked them out for being broke. Uh, Hank even had to hand over his watch for part of the trip Um, Lucky for them, Warren just so happened to be driving by And he picks them up Next thing we know, we're at Stark Industries Which is uh, protected by a chain-link fence I mean, that's some top-notch security In fairness, we do get a footnote here Saying that this scene occurs before the events of Tales of Suspense number 89 And this is referring to the fact that this new building hasn't yet been opened You know, the original Stark Industries building had been destroyed They're rebuilding there There's really not a whole lot going on. We also learn that Tony Stark is out on a date this evening, and so, outside this mention, we won't be getting an Iron Man cameo this time out. Now, could you imagine if editorial cared even, like, one-eighth as much about keeping things straight nowadays? Or were able to, like, pull themselves away from their social media long enough to, like, read the books that they're editing? Anyway, Warren angels up and hits the skies, and he's soon attacked by the Cobalt Man. From here we get a few pages of fighting uh, Cobalt Man keeps ranting about how Iron Man is a traitor And he assumes that since the X-Men all wear masks That they are traitors too Um, anyone got a mirror? I mean, all CM there what, what, what do you got covering your face? Huh, anyway At this point, creepy Ted Roberts and the boogie van roll up uh, Gene and Scott secretly hop out And play it as though they've been there all along Ted gives them both an odd look And I mean, come on Uh, We've got one of the five red-headed women on Marvel Earth And a dude with glasses disappearing And then a red-headed woman and a dude with an eye visor showing up Ted may be dumb, but he's not stupid From here, we fight The X-Men are able to deactivate the Cobalt Man's armor by coating it with ice And then blasting the bejesus out of its chest plate Ralphie falls into the Long Island Sound Probably getting a nice dose of dysentery for his troubles But at least he didn't explode, right? So bingo, bango, problem solved, and uh, we get a two-panel epilogue where Ted kind of alludes to the fact that he knows who Psyche and Marvel Girl really are. Jean questions her role in the X-Men once again, and we finally get a pretty good hint as to what lurks behind Xavier's wooden door. Roy leaves us with the title of the next issue, uh, Beware the Juggernaut, My Son, saying that that's something that Lewis Carroll might say, and that is a reference to Carroll's poem, Beware the jabberwock, my son. So this is one of those good news, bad news situations for the analysis portion of the program. Um, good news in that I liked this issue. I thought this was, this issue was a lot of fun. That said, uh, that's pretty much all I can say about it. <laughs> it's like I fall back into our, our old ways here of uh, just declaring these stories to be silly but fun, because that's kind of what this is here. We are ramping up the uh, soap elements. Of course, we've been... Ramping those up for quite a while now with the weird love triangle between Scott and Gene and Warren. Looks like we might be... well, we're moving Warren out, right? Warren, we got him with Candy Southern now, at least for a little bit. And it looks like in his slot, we're bringing in creepy Ted Roberts. Uh, Gene's questioning what she feels about Ted... And that might just be leaving poor Scott out in the cold here. Uh, since this is a Silver Age story and we can literally read the minds of our characters, uh, we didn't get much of Jean fretting about Scott or even thinking about Scott. I don't know that, his, that he even went through her mind there, outside of the fact that she thought he made a really good leader for the team. Nothing personal, nothing romantic. All of those thoughts uh, were, well, maybe not, not necessarily romantic thoughts, but her, but her thoughts in general We're more focused on uh, Ted and his safety. And to be completely honest, I can't remember off the top of my head how long we're going to be graced with uh, Ted Roberts here. I think I kind of conflated a bit of this era. I I think I saw Ted becoming the Cobalt Man, not uh, Ralphie. So I think I was expecting that reveal, and when that didn't happen, I was a little bit surprised and, uh, well, maybe a little bit disappointed as well because I'm kind of over the Ted Roberts character. Uh, What else we got here? Um, The uh, Professor X scene, where he refuses to intervene uh, because he didn't consider it a life-or-death situation. Or maybe that's a result of Cyclops sugarcoating the situation they were in. Maybe he didn't make it seem like it was life-or-death, but, I mean, you got a dude who's wearing a cobalt suit who might become a bomb, and you're trapped under, you know, a ton of debris. Yeah, maybe maybe Professor X ought to step in and do something, right? Maybe Xavier just realized he wasn't going to be able to swoop in and get all the uh, the credit and accolades this time, so decided just to wash his hands of it altogether and then send, you know, uh, Warren, Hank, and Bobby to a completely different place. You know, <laughs> he didn't send them to Robert's Research to help Scott and Gene. He sent them to Stark Industries to, uh, to meet up with the Cobalt Man. So I don't know if it's just all of our hindsight and our it seems like readers of my vintage were were brought into this, and I've said this before, where we have like this weird knee-jerk distrust of Xavier. And so I don't know if folks who read this back in 1967 were like, hey, why isn't he helping out? And assume that his plan will just work out, whatever it is. But I think uh, readers and fans of my vintage and and younger are seeing this and just thinking like, wow, he was always kind of a jerk, right? Uh, He's... Not the most trustworthy fellow. Uh, and we, we add to that the fact that he, uh, he seemingly has the juggernaut locked behind a wooden door. And, I mean, we'll find out more about that next issue, I'm, I'm guessing. But uh, without context, it's like, I think about the juggernaut and how he like literally clawed himself out of a cave-in. And he can't break through a wooden door? I don't know, maybe he's knocked out. I, I assumed he was dead because <laughs> Xavier said, oh, I took care of him back in the, uh, long ago there. In any event, we'll likely find out about that next time. And uh, I tell you what, I'm definitely looking forward to it, and I hope you are as well. But, yeah, I think uh, I think we went as deep as we can go on this particular issue. It was silly but fun. If, uh, if I left anything out, please feel free to hit me up and let me know, and uh, we can discuss it further in uh, future episodes. So, with the story done, we still have the mutant mailbox here We got quite a few letters to get through We're going to start with one from Jeff in Brooklyn And, well, do you all remember that Jagoff who wrote in a few issues ago To take stand the task for calling the book the X-Men Despite the fact that there was a girl on the team? Well, Jeff certainly remembers him, and he would have words He reminds the Jag that the term mankind includes women as well as men So maybe chill out a little bit now, Jeff also digs the Banshee and uh, asks to know whether or not the Banshee is Irish. Really? Uh, maybe Maybe it's just my own hindsight here, but uh, I-, I didn't think that was a huge mystery. Uh, now, spoiler alert, our man Jeff's got a prediction which, I mean, will definitely, definitely come true. He says the Banshee will join the X-Men and marry the Scarlet Witch. Yep, so you heard it here first. Uh, Jeff thinks that the Mimic is too powerful and thinks he should be depowered once and for all. And, you know, funny you mention that. And uh, Stan's reply is basically that, you know, ding-dong, the Mimic's gone. Next up, Joseph in Jersey. Now He accuses Roy Thomas of massacring the X-Men. Massacring mutants, that sounds kind of catchy. He says the book's been the craps since issue 19, and now it's even worse because the Mimics joined the team. He liked Banshee and thought the ogre was just an awesome villain. Which, uh, dude, you're you're undermining your own points here. He also assumes that we'll never see Banshee ever again, not even in the special, you know, Banshee Wanda marriage issue. He says that Werner Roth is improving, and I'm sure Werner is relieved to hear that. Stan mentions how this mailbox is turning into a place where people gather to gripe about the mimic, and also how when they offed him back in issue 19, everybody wanted him back. So. Fans be fickle, y'all. Alrighty, next up we got KM&J from East Stroudsburg State College. And, uh, oh-ho-ho, here comes the pain. Okay. You'll remember a few issues back where Gene hands Hank a screwdriver and refers to it as a pair of pliers. And then Hank tells Gene that she's a credit to her gender. Well, that chicken's about to come home to roost. Hmm. Well, no, not really. Uh, These clowns just want a no prize for pointing out the error. And uh, man, I thought we were about to get all sorts of controversial up in here Um, Now Stan admits to the goof And reveals that he's received just shy of one zillion letters to call him out for it And uh, Stan says that Roy is no longer allowed to write about pliers or screwdrivers from this point on Next up we got Sean or Robert from St. Louis Uh, This is like a joke email Uh, This goober writes his entire missive in a heavy Irish or I guess oirish accent so, uh, sorry, Sean, or Robert, um, I'm not even gonna try to translate this Uh, Stan agrees, and he wishes that Marvel could afford a translator So, nice try, you got printed, so I guess that's a victory Alan in California loves Banshee and already considers him a favorite Really, dude? Um, loves his costume, his powers, the whole shebang Would love to see some more of Mr. Cassidy bebopping around the Marvel Universe To which Stan says to look for Banshee in an upcoming issue of Two-Gun Kid And, uh, yeah, I did check, Stan's just joking Next up we got Mark and John in Michigan And this is Mark's third letter But the first time he's done it with a partner Which sounds a lot dirtier than I thought it would Uh, Anyway, Mark, or John, loves the X-Men, everything about them Loves Banshee, too, and would like to see more of him And would also like to see more of the Juggernaut And, uh, Stan says to stay tuned and probably to face front Next up, Jack White in Massachusetts, and, uh I think that might be the musician that I always picture in my head when I hear the name Gerard Way. Eh, It's neither here nor there, because it's probably not either of them. Now, uh, Jack suggests that the tool that Jean handed Hank was a mutant tool. And therefore, she was right in calling it pliers when it was actually a screwdriver. Uh, Okay. Uh, Stan thanks him for the get-out-of-jail-free card, but he's pretty upset that he already responded to those dorks from uh, Pennsylvania a few letters ago. Next up, Dave Jr. in Mississippi, who loved issue number 28, and says it should be in the Comics Hall of Fame. Um, it was good, but let's not go crazy there, Dave. Uh, he can't wait to see the Mimic battle the super-adaptoid. Okay, and he says that Professor X is smarter than Reed Richards and Doctor Doom. Finally, we got Mimi in Seattle, who loved issue number 28. She's happy that the Mimic's a good guy, and... Uh, she loves Professor X, okay? She absolutely adores Professor X and says that she has a thing for brilliant, handsome, and dedicated bald men. So, um, any listeners in Seattle want to want to take her up on this? I don't know. Uh, she thinks Warner Roth is the second best artist at Marvel behind Jazzy John Ramita, and cites Banshee's appearance as evidence of this. Um, mm-hmm. Banshee, you know, uh... To put it bluntly, he didn't have an alibi. This issue, he was very, very homely. He looked like he was chasing pork cause, but uh, okay. Uh, she also says that she feels a kinship with Banshee, not only because she's Irish, but uh, because sometimes her friends refer to her as "screaming me me." And uh, Stan is tickled by this letter, and you know, with pretty good reason. It's it's a goodie. It's a good letter. Next up, we got the bullpen bulletins, otherwise known as. <clears throat> A profound potpourri of perplexing pronouncements and preposterous philosophy, all portending practically nothing. And I, I promise I'm never going to edit that line out, because they're going to get crazier, so um, we'll see if I can get through them all in one take. Our first item is Stan saying that they decided to omit the Mighty Marvel checklist this month. Well, there goes about a minute and a half of my show. Uh, Stan's not entirely married to the idea, however, and uh, says if enough folks want it back... Well, their wish is his command. Item, did you know that there are Marvel specials on TV? I bet you didn't. <clears throat> Item, Stan says he literally gets a zillion questions a week about the elusive Irving Forbush. And so he wants to know from you, O oh faithful one, if you'd like to see a picture of Honest Irv, or should they just keep him locked away in the basement away from any prying eyes to keep him the enigma that he currently is? Item. We got some blood curdling Brand Ech controversy here. Uh, now, Stan says he's been getting a lot of correspondence from readers, maybe a zillion or so letters, regarding some nastiness being slung in Marvel's direction from recent pages of uh, Brand Ech comics. Now, the front facers want Stan to strike back. But here's the thing Stan doesn't actually read Brand Ech comics, so he hasn't seen this with his own two eyes yet. Now, Stan says that since he doesn't have the room to post all of these letters he received about this, he's decided to kind of Frankenstein together one all-encompassing whistleblower missive here. Now, the letter that Stan writes to himself suggests that uh, when Stan says brand, eh, he's referring to all non-Marvel comics. But it would appear as though one certain publisher takes that a little bit more personally than the rest. Now, Stan's reputation has been called out in their letters pages, suggesting that Stan himself does not write the stories with his name on it. Hmm. Also, Marvel characters have been parodied in their books, and the good Marvel name has been drugged through the mud. And Stan replies in, well, a statesmanlike sort of way. He says that uh, plenty of creators who work for Brand Ech are actually very talented. And not only that, they've worked for Marvel in the past, and hopefully, they'll pass through Marvel's doors again somewhere down the line. Stan respects all the hard work that goes into all comics creation, and he asks the fans to have that same respect. And, for goodness sake, stop taking things so seriously. He apologizes if he actually managed to ruffle any feathers, and assures us that, from his point of view, the competition is not only healthy, but it's friendly. So, um, hey, points to Stan for being statesmanlike. Maybe we take some points away for clearly writing a letter to himself to facilitate such a statesmanlike response. <clears throat> now, into the wrap up, which is some tidbits and trivia from the bullpen. Uh, we learn that John Ramita is a volunteer fireman in Long Island. Sal Brodsky is a great poker player. Frank Giacoya is as good a penciler as he is an inker. Stan and Jack haven't seen each other in months, busy bees both. Werner Roth used to work for Marvel back in the long ago on The Apache Kid. So I'm sure hearing from uh, readers of the day that he's getting better is is really high praise indeed for a guy who's been in the business for well over a decade at this point. Uh, We learn that Dick Ayers can ink a page faster than you, yes, you, can read it. And Stan goes as far as to suggest that, uh, okay, Gil Sugar Lips Kane compete with Ayers in an inking race for charity. And, I mean, I get Sugar and cane, but Sugar Lips? Hmm. Uh, finally, Don Heck drew a bunch of characters in the latest issue of Avengers, which, uh, it's kind of the gig, isn't it? From here, we would usually go into the Mighty Marvel checklist, but, alas, we don't have one. Um, let's make some guesses here. Uh, Fantastic Four probably has the Inhumans and Doctor Doom in it. Uh, Nick Fury and, uh, and the, the Howling Commandos fight Nazis. S.H.I.E.L.D. probably fights AIM and or HYDRA Captain America fights uh, Batrock the Leaper maybe Iron Man fights another guy with armor Hulk fights another monstrous character Namor fights some undersea character uh, The Avengers, uh, we'll probably hear that Wanda and Pietro are back for the fourth issue in a row uh, We've got those three books full of reprints What else, what am I leaving out here? Uh, Daredevil's uh, secret identity is almost revealed And Thor does something dramatic I think we might have covered them all there And I don't think I got my full 90 seconds worth out of that segment But it's good enough From here we got the Merry Marvel Marching Society Uh, 26 new members, nobody really stands out We've got a listing of like 50 cities Where you can find the Marvel superheroes TV specials And it's like worldwide But uh, Phoenix, Arizona? Still left out in the cold Or heat, I guess And that is the issue here uh, We do not have a mailbag today It usually takes a few days for the mailbag to percolate a bit When we switch formats from regular Rolex laps into the essentials and back again So hopefully in the next few days we'll have it But I'm okay not having it today Because, uh, well, I'm just a few minutes away from having uh, another crown put in So mm, not looking forward to that one bit But uh, I digress uh, despite the fact that we don't have a mailbag, we do have shout-outs here. I would like to thank the following folks for helping to spread the word about this show. Hopefully we'll reach some new eyes, ears, and maybe even hearts somewhere down the line here. Over on Twitter, I want to thank Jesse DeYoung, Ed Moore, Dave Schultz, Chris Bailey, the 21st Century Boys, Joe Crawford, Mark Jagger, Chris at BTO and Bat Books, Fausto Bridges, Edward Huey, Wayne Burroughs, and Jason Colby. Over on Facebook, I want to thank Jesse DeYoung, Pat Sampson, Joe Crawford, Andrew Franklin, Jeremiah, Evan Bevins, Billy D., and Walt Nealand. And while on the thank you train, I want to thank the patrons over at slash xlapsed. I want to thank Andrew Franklin, Ed Moore, Walt Nealand, Jeremiah, Jason Colby, the Scary Stuff Podcast, Jesse DeYoung, Damian, Peter McPherson, and Mark Jagger. As I always say, and I hope it's not feeling repetitive or canned, but uh, your support really does mean the world to me. I feel like I can't adequately thank you anywhere near enough as I need to. I've got plenty more content planned for uh, the Patreon. I actually spent about about six hours yesterday parsing the first half of 2019's X-Men sales charts, which took a, a much longer than I thought it would. I really thought uh, when I... When I made the suggestion that I go all the way back to the start of the Hoxpox era and, and start tracking the uh, the sales charts just to have fun with the numbers, kind of pretend we know what we're talking about as it pertains to the business of comics. And honestly, I thought it was going to be very, very easy and very quick. You know, it was going to be like something I did if I had time. And so I sat down to finally start putting it together uh, just yesterday as of this recording. And I decided that rather than start with July 2019, which was the month that uh, Powers of X and House of X number 1 both launched, that I would go back to January of 2019 to kind of build a context, you know, kind of set the table for what the X-Books looked like before the era that we're covering on Original Recipe, X-Lapsed. Just to, you know, kind of see the take the temperature, see the health of the X-Books and... I tell you what, not only did it take me forever to uh, get this uh, put together as an article, it was also very eye-opening. It was almost, like, sad. Um, One of the things that really caught me off guard was the Age of X-Men crossover event, or the crossover event, as I refer to it in that article, which, from a sales standpoint, absolutely bombed. And I'd never looked at these numbers before, so that was very, very eye-opening. And... I really can't wait to share this data and my thoughts on this data with you all. But, you see, I'm on Blogger still. And Blogger has never been the most intuitive or the most user-friendly platform. It's one that's kind of simple but not easy. And you definitely get what you pay for. Uh, It used to be a little bit easier to um, parse and to navigate. But now, I mean... I'm trying to put pictures in this article. This article is about 5,000 words long. It's a biggie. And rather than just have it be charts and spreadsheets and then just blocks of text, I wanted to put some pictures in there as well. Boy, you try to put a picture in a blogger uh, post... Forget about it. You you don't know what you're gonna get. It's the most ridiculous thing. I try to post a picture in between two paragraphs. It shows up on the top of the damn article. Shows up at the bottom of the article. It moves all my stuff over. It's just the absolute worst. So, I'm trying to figure out a way to make this a little bit more readable, a little bit less uh, text heavy. And once that's done, I can you know grab the HTML of that, pop it in the Patreon page, and everything be good to go in theory. But uh, until I get that figured out, it's just sitting in my damn drafts folder, which really, really sucks. So if anybody out there listening has any sort of information on how to go about getting a better digital home, please let me know. And, you know, while on that subject, if you want to let me know about that or anything that's going on in comics, or hell, even your own life, please feel free to hit me up. You can find me on Twitter at Ace Comics, you can shoot me an email over to history at gmail.com, or you can call into the X-Lapsed voicemail hotline at 623-396-JERK. For blog posts, show notes, and hopefully eventually I'll figure out how to get that damn sales thing up there, uh, Chris is on InfiniteEarths.com. And I do plan on releasing the first Sales of X article on both the blog, and on the Patreon, just to give folks a taste of what they may find if they hop over the other side. Also, you can check us out on Facebook. Our little group is 90s X-Men, and of course, for the complete Chris and Reggie audio archives, we've got chrisandreggie.podbean.com, and that's available anywhere you find noise on the internet. Finally, the Patreon, again, is patreon.com xlapsed. You only get charged once a month the first of the month, so if you sign up on the second, third, or fourth, as far as I know, you don't get charged until the following first. So if you want to pop in, just check out what we offer there. See if you dig it. If you do, stick around. If not, eh, no harm, no foul. I appreciate you giving me the opportunity. And maybe we'll see you there somewhere down the road. But I think that'll do it for today. I do want to thank you all so much for spending a little bit of your day with me today. And until next time, as always, I'll be talking to you again real soon. See ya.